Good morning. Virtual and real. These two worlds can tend to be confused at times, and the the boundary between them can become all too porous. Here's an example of this. Research was done from a PhD grad student from Stanford, and in his research, he proved that 43% of men and 50% of women who are online gamers confessed that their virtual relationships were equal or greater than their real life relationships. Uh, We are living in a day when there is great confusion between what is virtual and and what is real. In fact, a a professor from the University of Indiana made this comment about the confusion between the virtual and the real. There is a true fuzziness that's emerging between the virtual and the real, and the outcome may not be good. I tend to agree with this. And so this morning, uh, these uh, facts beg a question. Uh, Has a quarantined world caused us to fail in our relationships. Uh, This research that I cited actually comes from a Wall Street Journal article dated 2007. So if there was a blurring of the virtual and the real then, can you imagine the struggle now? And and I believe we live in a day where uh, this uh, mixing of the virtual and the real can certainly cause our relationships to change and, and possibly even cause many of us to fail at relationships that should be lived out well and honorable to the Lord. Uh, this morning, I welcome you back into the study of First Peter, a life that's proven, a solid faith in a shifting world. Now, the last time we joined Peter uh, in his letter that he wrote to the persecuted church of the first century, First uh, Peter chapter 2, Verse 12, he instructed us to live well before a a pagan world. This idea of of a pagan world was identified as a Gentile world. Peter intended that this reference a a non-Christian or an unchristian world. And so Peter's encouragement was do good, live well, so that in a world that is not too friendly to the Christian faith, your Christian faith will be proven and God will be seen and the glory of Christ will be seen. Uh, One significant step that we can take to live our faith well in a fallen pagan world has to do with our relationships. Because as Peter uh, was led by God to speak those words in verse 12, we move a little deeper into chapter 2 and we discover in verse 13 the beginning of several references to relationships, a significant way that we can allow our faith to to remain strong, even against suffering and persecution, is to live well and to relate well with those around us. Our relationships truly matter. And from 1 Peter 2, verse 13 and forward, we discover some significant references that will help us Uh, in our relationships, Uh, we need to discern, as God teaches through his word this morning and through the Holy Spirit, uh, how we can relate well and have good relationships that are proven even in the midst of suffering and persecution. Uh, In verse 13, uh, we are given this encouragement, uh, submit yourselves to 
uh, to every human institution like uh, emperors, kings, and governors. So immediately we are told how to relate to those over us. In verse 18, we're presented with a relationship between slave and master. And in Peter's context, the master would be an unjust master. And so in this particular uh, address of relationships, we are told how to relate well to those who are against us. And then as we move to chapter 3 and and visit a few of those opening verses there, we discover the same accountability of relating well inside the home, particularly as it concerns wives and husbands. And so there we are encouraged how to relate well with those closest to us. So today, as we discern how to truly stay strong in our faith in a a world where there is a significant amount of adversity and, and strife and suffering, We're encouraged to relate well to those over us, those against us, and those closest to us. Let's begin with the first. How do we, as followers of Christ in this world, relate well to those who are over us? In order to embrace this at the depth that God desires, I'd like to share with you, first, a foundational principle Uh, then a purpose, and then personal commitment. Each of these uh, observations of the scripture will take us more deeply to a significant place where we are relating well to those government authorities over us. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority are to governors. Now we pause there. We'll conclude verse 14 in just a moment. But consider how we relate well to those over us by first noticing the the foundational principle. Submit yourselves. This term submit comes from a a compound term in the scriptures in the original Greek, uh, hupotasso, meaning to place yourself under. The indication is to consider the importance of those that are over us. So this becomes a significant principle that will serve foundational throughout the remainder of this chapter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Well, that's a phenomenal statement to hold us accountable to a higher measure, although we are to submit ourselves to governing authorities. The higher measure represents the Lord's sake for his purpose or as it is unto him. But we are to relate well to those over us in authority. Notice that verse 13, as we consider this foundational principle of submit, uh, we find here that we are to submit to every human institution. I love this phrase because the indication is regardless of the office, whether it be a king, emperor, or governor, the emphasis is upon the fact that that institution represented is represented by someone who is human, meaning God created, and by sake of a line of authority, they are God placed. And so we respect that which God has set in place. Our submission is unto what the Lord has created. And so this argues well the the obvious emperor worship that was very prevalent in Rome's day. And so instead of looking to an official as someone who has the same 
placement as God. No, we, we look unto them with a heart of submission as a way to honor our Lord. For God, and only God, has set that authority in place. So we submit ourselves even in the spirit of submitting unto the Lord. Now, there is a, an incredible reminder of how important this spirit of submission is to each of us. Uh, for that reminder, I turn quickly to Ephesians chapter 5. I just want to share this with you very quickly. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is what we read. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, well that's an imperative. Be filled with God's presence in your life. And then the following are descriptions of how one lives who has the Holy Spirit controlling them, speaking to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks, and then submitting to one another. The spirit of submission is a direct testimony of you and I living under the influence of God's presence within us, His Holy Spirit within us. And so we submit. This becomes the foundational principle of how we relate to those authorities over us. But we can't stop there because second, we turn to the purpose. Why is this so significant? Well, let's continue reading in verse 14. We submit to kings and to governors. And by the way, the word king is used in some translations and emperors in others, but the indication is of the same government office. Because in, in the Hellenistic period, the, the term king was predominant. As Rome grew uh, in its control, the, the term was changed to emperor to indicate that same office of of leadership and authority. So to, to kings or emperors and to governors, um, we submit to them as sent uh, by, by what God has done to place those leaders uh, where they are. They are. They are in place for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. Now listen to verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So the purpose of, of you and I responding and relating well to those authorities over us is twofold. First, they're in place for what I like to term a, a civil peace and a civil obedience. God has appointed leaders in place so that in the civil context, there can be order and not chaos. Can you imagine if we were truly living under a complete absence of order. I know at times it may feel this way. But can you imagine if there was a complete removal of, of some type of, of order uh, governmentally and civilly? So, so Peter's movement uh, through the Holy Spirit is to say, respect what God has put in place because this brings order. And, and Peter describes that particular civil order by leaders who should, as, as they are appointed by God for the right authority, should punish evildoers and praise those who do right. Now, again, this is reminiscent of another passage in Scripture that I need to remind us of because this becomes a significant parallel to the, to the passage uh, that is before us. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, this is what we read. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. At the beginning of that passage reads, every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. Straight from God's word, we are to live in that submission, not blind subjugation, where we are totally ignorant and, and, and are, are indifferent to the, uh, to the platform and to the personality of man. So there is not a call here to a, a blind indifference or a blind subjugation, but actually a godly submission to the authority that God himself has 
put in place. So uh, the purpose is to honor what God has put in place. But there's a second expression of purpose in verse 15. By doing right, you'll silence uh, the slander or the attacks of those who are ignorant or, or who are slandering Christians. So we are obedient to those authorities over us because we do good when we have a life of, of submission and respect and honor to those offices. Now, again, we're not called to be indifferent to, uh, to the politic personality or the platform of any individual that would contradict God's rule over our lives. But nonetheless, we're called to honor that office that God has set in place. That seat of authority is something that scripture tells us God has ordained. And so we honor that here by by the expression doing right or doing good. I love this Greek word doing good. Agatha poieo. It's a big word, but it actually means that which is intrinsically good. This is the exact same word, which is why I wanted to pronounce it for you, that is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus himself said, love your enemies and do good. There's the word to those who would come against you. Now, obviously, we're not equating any seat of office as an enemy, but we're looking at the, the very foundation of this purpose for why we are to respect the office. That is an expression of doing good. I love what I, I like to see sometimes of uh, these narrative bookends. I want to show you two narrative bookends. The first bookend is in verse 12. We quoted this earlier, where we're told to do good even in front of a culture that is pagan or Gentile. And then in verse 15, there's the other bookend, do good as you honor those who are over you. Seated between those two bookends of a call for every Christian to do good in a pagan world is this exhortation to submit to those authorities over us. So we understand the purpose. Uh, the purpose is to recognize the civil order God intends from those leaders. And second, the purpose is to be in a good standing civilly and in the society around us so that uh, evil men will not have any negative uh, word to cast against the followers of Christ. We are to do good in that way. But there's a third way that we need to embrace the importance of relating well to those over us. And this comes in verse 16. This now represents the personal commitment the first two are not enough. We have to fully unpack verse 16 to understand how we need to be relating to those government offices over us. Now, obviously, the principle, uh, foundationally speaking, uh, submit. And obviously, the purpose is we, we've established that to do right so that Christ is honored and we're seen as, as those who are truly living out the spirit as God has desired us to live out. But verse 16 gives us the personal commitment Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use this as bond slaves of God. We are called here servants, bond slaves of God. The, the word is doulos. This word doulos is the highest, most honored place that any follower of Christ can have that, that is named in all of the New Testament. To be a servant of Christ is to be totally and completely under his authority. So our personal commitment is not that we are citizens of this world. Our personal commitment, first and foremost, is that we are bond slaves. We are the doulos of Jesus Christ. And so our personal commitment is that we serve Christ and we serve him above all things. When Peter writes, act as free men, but do not use your freedom to cover up evil. The evil represents the evil that we might have a tendency to tolerate when there are uh, laws and there are principles that are established that, that are against uh, the, the Christian faith. 
So that is an evil that we cannot uh, fall to. Also, the evil would be that we would uh, become scathing verbally and publicly against those leaders. We have to be very careful of this, that we show respect through our submission, but at the same time, we allow nothing to stand in the way of our roles as bond slaves and bond servants of Jesus Christ. And so our personal commitment is to Christ. I love this phrase, use your freedom uh, as, as bond slaves of God. The idea of freedom is not that we can have liberty to do, it, to do as we desire, but the whole idea of freedom represents a change of masters. We're no longer serving ourselves or the world, but we have the freedom to serve Christ, for he has drawn us to himself, and our faith is in him, and, and we trust him. And, and, if, and if we truly belong to Christ, then we're servants of his. We are the, the doulos. We are bond slaves. We are committed to him. And oh, what a beautiful picture this is. So, so how do we relate well to those in government offices over us? Well, we have discovered the foundational principle, the purpose, and then the personal commitment. Do you know the outcome of this? The outcome is fourfold and represents what I would call the metrics of how we determine that we are respectful to those leaders over us, but we are not turning our back to the truth of God. For that is the ultimate citizenship that should win out in our lives. We are citizens of heaven. And so all things belong to God. The the psalmist cried that out in Psalm 24. The whole earth is the Lord's. And so all that we render to Caesar's what is his and to God's what is God's, everything belongs to God. So even while we try to live at peace civilly in our society, our activity of respect to those offices are an offering to God because all things belong to him. And how do we measure that our heart is in the right place there? Verse 17 tells us, honor all people, love the church, the brotherhood, fear God and honor the king. Honor all people. We live by the principle of honor to everyone. Well, that's the Christ-like attitude. But inside the church, you see the second exhortation, oh, love the brothers. So there are times when, when we honor all people, but as we love the church, our, our honor for people should never contradict the spirit of the church, who we are as the body of Christ. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, love the church, fear God, and then honor the king. So while we, while we honor the king, we should never honor the king in a way that would represent that we do not fear or have our deepest devotion to God. So the first and the last represent that which is societal and political. The second and third represent that which is spiritual and ecumenical. We, yeah, we, we want to honor all people, but most of all, we, we want to build in that Christian love in the body of Christ. And we want to fear God above all things, even while we are striving to honor the king. So all four are very important metrics. If any of those four are not present in your life, then please revisit uh, the life that God has called us to as we honor those authorities over us. So I know there's a lot there, but oh, this is such a significant application for our present day. This is how we relate to those that are over us. Now, real quickly, I just want to show you from the scripture how we now relate to those who are against us. And for this, we move into the next, next section of verses that represents the relationship between servants and masters. And as mentioned earlier, the masters here are probably representing those unjust masters that many Christian slaves and servants had to endure. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of 
conscience toward God, a person bears up unto sorrows when suffering unjustly. When we reveal the heart of God and of Christ, even though there are those that are against us, oh, uh, we find favor with God. Now look at verse 20. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Well, the emphasis here is uh, pertaining to a slave or a servant, literally speaking. If that servant disobeys or does something wrong uh, and they're punished, and then Peter reminds them there's really nothing to gain because you're enduring that type of punishment. However, but if when you do what is right, you still have someone coming against you and you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. This is the commendable life. And so how do we respond when there are those that are against us? In verse 18, when Peter began with the word servants, he did not use the word doulos as he did earlier. He used another term that is a bit broader. And although I'm sure Peter had in mind the domestic servant in a home, well, this application could extend far and wide for us today because it could actually involve any person present in any professional arm of life or in any relationship segment in life wherein there is an authority over you that is treating you wrong and very unjustly. And so Peter encourages us to respond to those who are against us in the way that Christ responded even in his own death. You see that described in verse 21 through 25. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you follow in his steps. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. Look at verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. I love that Peter first calls us to act right toward those who are against us and then shows us the example of Christ. Here we find first that we are called the servants of God again. Our priority is identity. Our identity is that we belong to God. We're children of God. We are followers of Christ. We are servants of Christ. That is our identity. And then secondly, our intention. Our identity, servant of Christ. And then second, our intention. What is our intention? Verse 21 through 25, to follow the example of Christ. He was reviled in the worst way, but he never reviled in return. And we become the benefactor. We, we benefit from this. His death and resurrection is our life. And he proved to us how to react to those who are against us. So our identity in this world is that we serve Christ. Do you know that if, that if I consider myself a slave to God, no one can really hold me as a slave. I'm already a slave to God. And if someone attempts to humiliate me, that really can't happen. I've already been humbled before Christ. In humiliation, I come to Christ. And he's restored me. Uh, in my sin, I came to Christ and he raised me up and gave me grace so that now I desire to serve him. So I'm, I'm his servant. I'm humbled before him. That's my identity. And now my intention is that with whomever I relate with that comes against me negatively, I respond in the example of Christ. I respond with love. First John 4, 19, uh, we love because God first loved us. Ephesians 4.32, we forgive even as God in Christ has forgiven us. This is a beautiful picture of how we are to relate to those who are 
against us. The year was 1948. The town was a small Korean village, Sunchung. There was a Korean pastor, Yang Wansan. The communists took over this town and executed the pastor's two sons. They were, they were martyred. They proclaimed their faith even to their death. When the communists were later driven out of the small village, a young man from the village, Chai Sung, was identified as the one who fired the shots that killed the pastor's two sons. What did the pastor do? He requested that the charges be dropped. He then asked the court to release the young murderer into his custody. After some deliberation, the courts agreed. Do you know what the pastor then, then did? He, he adopted the young man. He adopted him. The one who murdered his sons. And then the young man obviously later became a follower of Christ. But I, I want to share with you the comment that Pastor Yang Wan Sung made of this event. I thank God that he has given me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son, the enemy who killed my dear boys. What an overwhelming demonstration of relating well to those who come against us. This is a phenomenal story, and yet the pastor's testimony was, God gave me the love. If God can give that type of love, then he can give love to you so that you can reach across whatever small barrier exists to embrace those who might feel opposed to you. Love your enemies, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11. Pray for those who persecute you. We need to relate well, not only to those who are over us, but to those who come against us. I'd like to share with you one more area of relationship. This is a significant passage, and we'll only deal with it in, in an overview but there's so much time, uh, so much information, so much content to embrace here. So notice this, as we, uh, as we pick up now in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Peter writes this, In the same way, wives, and be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, but by your behavior, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, and putting on dresses. So obviously, Peter now shifts to the context of the home. And, and just for the next few moments, consider how we need to relate well, not only to those over us and those against us, but those closest to us. Now, obviously, Peter is addressing, in the order that even Paul addressed uh, the domestic household order, uh, Peter's addressing uh, the wife first and then uh, the husband. But both together bring this collaborative emphasis for everyone in the home and certainly reminds us how we are to relate well to those closest to us. Now, keeping with the, uh, with the emphasis of those suffering under uh, an unfair treatment, well, I believe Peter has this in mind moving into chapter 3. For in Peter's day, uh, the, the Roman government truly uh, fostered the authority of the man in the home, even uh, to, uh, to the disparaging effects sometimes on the wife and maybe even on the children. There were times when 
the husband would turn and follow Christ and the whole household would naturally come after him. You see evidence of that in Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer. But it had been in Peter's day when the wife might be the first in the home to turn to Christ. Well, because of the Roman rule, she would scarcely have the opportunity to influence the husband or the children. And at times there would be friction and contention. And at times uh, the, the, the wife might be tempted to become a bit more stern or even to depart from the home in an attempt to continue to, to live out our faith. Peter gives a very difficult but such encouraging exhortation to the home as he first addresses to wife the wife and, and actually gives these words. Uh, even if your husband doesn't hear your words, live out your, uh, your faith. Live that out with a quietness and, and with a respectfulness and, and with a purity of heart. And so if we are to relate well to those closest to us, our first step is to avoid falling to natural inclinations. No one knows our natural inclinations like those within our own home or those within our own workplace or those that we call our dearest friends. Sometimes our natural inclinations are not good, especially when relational conflict arises. And, and we are called here not to resort to those outward manifestations of our identity. Paul is using the, the braided hair and, and the uh, outer adornment for the wife as an example of how sometimes the, the externals become ways in which we try to prove ourselves or, or influence others. And Paul writes to the wife, don't depend upon that. There is a higher value of your life than what you are externally. And so we are to avoid the natural inclinations to which we sometimes default when friction comes that can affect our relationship with those closest to us. Sometimes our natural inclination is a temper. Sometimes it is to assume the worst in another person. Sometimes our natural inclination is to withdraw and to pull away. And Peter tells these precious women who were under such adverse relationships, allow something more than that which is outward to prove who you are. So we have to avoid those natural inclinations of the flesh. But secondly, we need to do this. This is our second step in relating well to those around us. We need to make certain that all things become spiritual matters of our heart. Now notice how this is described from verse four and following. But let the hidden person of your heart, let the real you, your spirit, where Christ has changed you with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet life, which is precious in the sight of God. So do not let it be your words or your outward demonstrative claims of virtue or how you adorn yourself, how you present yourself. Don't allow that to be what you default to. But instead, let that person inside of you, the real you that Jesus has changed, let that be what influences others. And then Peter reminds the wife, and I believe it's a reminder for all of us to, to be gentle and quiet, meaning to truly live as under the direction of God's Holy Spirit within us. Verse five, for in this way, in former times, the holy women who hoped in God, who used to adorn themselves, were submissive. And then Sarah, wow, has often been called the, the first lady of the, of the Hebrew faith. Sarah is an example of this. And then we're told in verse six, uh, uh, with great analogy, yet with also biblical Old Testament fact, that as Sarah so carried herself with Abraham, certainly the example is there for wives with her husbands in Christian's home, Christian homes. But again, the emphasis is upon not falling to natural inclinations, but truly allowing 
the faith of one's heart to be the testimony and to guide us in those relationships closest to us. Now, those two steps are just as much for the husband as for the wife, and I'll prove it to you. Verse 7, husbands in the same way. There's no condescension mentioned here. And although the wife will be called the weaker vessel, she was called that in Peter's day, I believe, because she was the most vulnerable. There is probably less vulnerability noticed today, and some would say this is primarily a reference to the physical vessel where perhaps the wife may be seen in a more vulnerable place physically than the husband. There are a lot of different conjectures and and applications, but the issue is this. Husbands, although you are seen, although you're seen as a stronger vessel in the home, husbands, you are just as accountable. And I would not dismiss the fact that husbands, you are more responsible. And I believe that's held up strongly in scripture. The roles are, are equal of value. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, there's neither male nor female. So that beautiful uh, equitableness of the home is brought clearly through the scriptures. But husbands, we are called to a responsibility that's different from the responsibility of our, of our precious wives. And we're called to this same accountability, not to fall to our natural inclinations of control, which is was the problem in Peter's day of, of husbands who, who, although were striving for some Christian faith, were, were not letting go of that Roman persona that they needed to drop, of that control in the home. And, and so husbands are held just as accountable to avoid that natural inclination and to surrender to the change that Jesus has brought to the heart because there is a direct correlation with our spiritual, our vertical, and the horizontal. It's a direct correlation. We, we cannot be who we are vertically with the Lord and be something different horizontally with those relationships closest to us or with any relationship. There is that dynamic complement that we know that uh, who we are in relationship with others should be a direct mirroring of who we are in the context of those closest to us, especially relationships in the home. And so here we have these three significant areas of relationships, especially in times of persecution. And I pray that for you, each of these relationships are proven well, even in these adverse moments. And I pray that amid a such a strong virtual culture, which is what you and I are sharing at this very moment, that you will not allow relationships to fail. I pray that you will follow the instructions of Scripture and you will relate well to those in authority over you. Don't let political platforms and expressions hurt your testimony for Jesus Christ. But as you submit to those authorities, honor Christ with all your heart. He's your primary authority. And then as you relate well to those who come against you, don't mirror their negative behavior. It's so easy to do that, is it not? When someone doesn't speak to you, isn't it easy to mirror that and and just conclude that I'll not speak to them? Or when someone has a negative attitude towards you, isn't it easy just to mirror that back? Don't mirror the other person. Mirror Jesus. This is the message. Relate well to those who are against you by mirroring the grace and mercy of Christ. And then relate well to those closest to you. Don't default to natural inclinations. That, that are so comfortably uh, defaulted to when we are with those close to us and we have the proverbial attitude of let's just let down our hair and be ourselves. Don't default to those natural inclinations, especially in the home, but allow Jesus and who he is and, and how he has changed you to guide the relationship. Oh, yes, those who are over us, those who are against us, those who are close to us need to see that we're relating well 
because of who Jesus Christ is to us. Relationships can indeed be proven in times of suffering. And I pray that it will be proven in your life that you are relating well. And before I go, yes, the most important relationship is where you are with Jesus Christ. And if indeed you've placed your faith in Christ and you know that you have peace with God through your faith in Him, then ask yourself if you are mirroring that uh, with those that you have relationships with, from those that are on the furthest circle out to those that are closest to you. But if you're listening this morning and you would say, hey, Pastor Ken, I don't, I don't really have a relationship with Jesus. I've never trusted Him and placed my faith in Him. Well, if you'll pray this prayer, and I just want to lead you in this prayer right now. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. And I, I turn from my sin. And I trust you. I want to follow you. Yeah, I love those types of prayers because they build on such verses as Romans 10, 9 and 10. That tells us when we confess with our mouth, he is Lord and believe in our hearts that he's been risen from the dead. We will be saved from our sin. Oh, I desire that you know him today. Do you really want good relationships, great relationships? Begin with trusting Jesus Christ. Trust him and he'll transform you. He'll transform your relationships. And dear Christian, go forward with the promise that as you live out your faith in your relationships, God will be honored. And even in adverse times, your relationships will be so good. They'll be great, in fact. And so I'm very grateful for the truth before us today. Hey, there is a texting number on the screen. Use that number if you've made a decision of faith today. If, if there's something spiritual, if there's anything personal, relational that you need to talk about, we are here for you. When you text that number, we'll have someone back in touch with you immediately. There's also a website location where you can send a message and, and find, uh, find information there that I think will be encouraging. But we would love to have an opportunity to get, to get to know you and to encourage you. So reach out if you can. Again, thank you for joining us this morning. Wow. Yes, relationships matter. And let's trust Jesus with our relationships. Let's trust him with our own lives. And let's see some incredible days ahead. Love you a lot. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us your word today. As we depart from this live broadcast, be exalted in our lives and in our relationships. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Stay around. Some great announcements are coming right up. God bless. 